spirit, and if angels are spirit, then if human beings are said to have bodies and spirits, does that mean that substance dualism is true? This is the question that we tackle in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name, of course, is Chris Date. I say, of course, like I'm some kind of big deal. I'm not, but if you're watching the show, the chances are very good that you already know who I am. Thank you for tuning in, whether you're watching live. I know that Susan and Mr. Green, uh, you guys are both in the chat. Thank you so much. It's good to have you guys here. And if you're not watching live, then um, thanks for watching after the stream was uh, recorded and archived in my channel. Uh, by way of reminder, the Apologetics is part of the Trinity Commission. The Trinity Commission is a network of podcasts and YouTube channels that in some way, shape, or form are connected to Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Uh, that school is where I am an adjunct professor of uh, Bible and theology. I'm even wearing my uh, Trinity swag today, or, or you know, Trinity bling, whatever, whatever the word is for it. And it's going to be a really good um, episode for me to be wearing my shirt today because because I'm going to be responding to my boss at Trinity, Braxton Hunter, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. But just to say another word or two about the Trinity Commission, um, you know, if you are, well, first of all, if you're somebody who's looking for a higher Christian education, um, but without the same degree of time and money that would have to go into attending a normal brick-and-mortar institution, then why don't you check out Trinity Seminary? Uh, just go to trinitysem.edu, S-E-M is short for seminary. Thank you, Terry, for saying I'm a big deal, but I'm really not, but I appreciate you saying so. Um, Trinity is, uh, I'm a big believer in what Trinity does, and I have, I think its future is um, far brighter than it is right now, because I think that it has the, it walks the perfect line between scholarship and academia on the one hand, and uh, biblical faith on the other hand. Um, you know, the people at Trinity aren't just interested in filling your head with a bunch of knowledge. They want to edify you, sanctify you. They want to transform you. They want to help you to become a man or woman of God um, in your scholarship and not merely some sort of ivory tower academic who, you know, doesn't really care for the concerns of the average person or anything like that. We we very much care about um, going out into the world with the education we've received and taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world that so desperately needs it. So I'm a big believer in Trinity. Um, they There are certain aspects of it that I'm hoping in the not-too-distant future will change. So, for example, Trinity, Trinity is not yet accredited, um, but that is something that we are working on and it, so if you're somebody that wants to go into a PhD program at a, at a university or something like that, then it might not be the place for you. But if you want to go into ministry, if you want to have a degree just for your own edification and education, Trinity is a fantastic place to check that out. So I'd encourage you to check out trinitysem.edu. But if you don't want a formal education, the Trinity Commission is a great place to receive something of an informal one. Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101, uh, Steve Gregg of The Narrow Path, Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett of Trinity Radio, 
um, the Bible Bro Down folks, and and here uh, uh, Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries, and and now at least of all Chris Date at the Apologetics. These are all shows where you can get an informal education, um, which I think is still a fantastic one. Uh, it just won't have a, it won't come with a degree. Um, so it, check out the Trinity Commission. You can go you search on search Facebook for Trinity Commission, and you should be able to find it, and it'll give you links, I think, to the other shows. Uh, I'd like to encourage Braxton and Jonathan to get like a Trinity Commission website up and going or something, but we'll see if that happens. So anyway, um, I guess that's enough of a pitch for Trinity. Um, let me shift gears and uh, tell you what we're going to be um, doing today. Sorry about that, I switched to the wrong scene. All right, here we go. So in a previous episode, episode 16, I introduced you, my um, long-suffering audience, long-suffering uh, me, that is, you know, putting up with me for so long. I introduced you to the topic of Christian physicalism. And then I, uh, and specifically, I introduced it to you in the context of Jesus uh, in his dying breath, commending his spirit back to his Father in heaven. And then also Stephen in the book of Acts, commending his spirit back to Jesus. And if you'll recall, what I argued is that when Jesus and Stephen say that, what they are doing is they are um, entrusting their breath, their life breath, back to God who gave it to them, knowing that one day they would give it back in resurrection. And then a few episodes later, episode 19, I tackled what's known as the continuity of identity objection to Christian physicalism, and I proposed something I don't particularly take seriously, like it's not something I necessarily am inclined to believe, but something that I do think is a defeater to the continuity of, continuity of identity objection to physicalism, um, hoping that it establishes that there may be other solutions to the problem that have yet to be come up with as well. Um, and what we're going to be doing today is continuing this as something of a series, and I'll get a little bit more into why in a moment. Um, now, as I explained in those past episodes, the question around physicalism has to do with anthropology. The, uh, it's from the Greek word anthropos, meaning um, human, and anthropology is the science or study of man, basically. Uh, and in the world of philosophy, the debate between physicalism and dualism is known as uh, the philosophy of mind debate. It's the debate around the nature of mental phenomena and especially on the relationship of the mind to the body. So, um, uh, so, and so going in a little bit more into specifics, the debate between monism, of which physicalism is one kind, and dualism, monism versus dualism, this is a debate over how many kinds of substances human beings are composed. So monism, whether you're talking about idealism or physicalism, is a view that human beings are made up of only one kind of substance, namely physical substances. Uh, well, that's what a physicalist like me thinks. An idealist thinks that that uh, one substance is mind. Uh, and then dualism says that there are two kinds of substances, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. So when we talk about kinds of substances, we're talking about substance in the philosophical jargon, right? A concrete entity, a concrete thing. We're not talking about like material stuff. And there are different kinds of substances you can conceive of. There are physical substances that are composed of matter or energy. Um, so matter, there are some examples of matter, like a radio transmitter or a human body and brain. And then there are examples of energy, an example of physical substances that are energy, like electromagnetic 
electromagnetic radiation and the brain's electromagnetic, fe electromagnetic field. But then you also have non-physical substances, which are neither matter nor energy. They are not physical at all. They're not part of the physical cosmos. Um, so we have spirit. Um, John 4.24, Jesus says God is spirit. It also appears to be heaven is, is the nature, or the nature of heaven is spirit. Uh, sorry, I'm... I'm, I'm that was wrong. What I meant to say was that heaven is another type of non-physical substance, right? The place where God exists. And obviously, where needs an asterisk there because uh, to talk about where in a dimension, you know, a place that's not extended into multiple dimensions, it seems a little bit strange. Uh, but then abstract concepts and ideas. Um, so the number four, for example, is not a physical substance. It's a non-physical one, an abstract concept or idea. So dualism wants to say that the two kinds of substances of which a human being is composed are physical and non-physical. And there are at least two kinds of dualisms. There's a dichotomy view, uh, according to which there is the body, which is the physical substance, and the soul slash spirit, right? It's, it's, those are two co-referring terms uh, in dichotomy. So the soul slash spirit, that's the non-physical substance. But there are also people who hold to a trichotomy view, um, and these also are dualists because they believe that human beings are composed of two kinds of substances, physical on the one hand, and there's your body, and non-physical on the other hand, but here they think that there are two non-physical substances that contribute to the makeup of man, namely soul and spirit. But by contrast, I and a small number of Christians now and through history are what are known as physicalists. Uh, physicalism is a brand or, or version of monism that says that no, human beings don't have a non-physical substance to their, uh, to their being. They are entirely physical. All right. So uh, this, this, just to catch you up, this is where the, uh, and by the way, I know some of you watching this, this is all old hat, but I'm really trying to, uh, to, to reach people that maybe haven't really dove into this debate yet. And so I'm hoping that these kinds of things help them to, uh, get their footing as we move into the topic of today's show, which is this. So as I said earlier, it's a good thing that I, um, remembered to, uh, talk about Trinity and my boss, Braxton Hunter there, uh, when I started the show, because because what we're going to be doing today is responding. Uh, responding is probably not the right answer or the right way to put it. More, what we're going to be doing is answering a question that Braxton Hunter asked, asked me uh, indirectly on a recent episode of Trinity Radio. That episode was from just three days ago, May 3rd. Uh, the URL is there on the screen, but uh, if you just go to Trinity Radio, you'll see it. It's one of the most recent episodes, provided you're watching this relatively close to when I'm streaming it. And uh, here is where my name and the topic of our discussion today came up. Let's watch. Hebrews 1, 7 and 14 refers to angels as spirits. Um, pneuma in Greek and ruach is the Hebrew equivalent. Yeah. This is the word used when referring to God's nature. For example, in Isaiah 31, 3, the Egyptians are human and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. This is this Hebrew parallelism that is giving you um, that, that the Egyptians are human, they're flesh. God is spirit, right? So, um, and, and the word for spirit in, in this passage is that Ruach. Man is both flesh and spirit. Maybe someone can uh, ask Chris State what he thinks about this. 
in First Corinthians five five and Second Corinthians seven one. <laughs> in <Cheap> John, <laughs> John <laughs> Hebrews one seven. Well, and so 14 you can see first, there uh, what, what happened when my name came up. Um, it, I, I I appreciate the the question and uh, don't at all see it as a cheap shot, like Jonathan Brit Pritchett mentioned there. Uh, I did get a kick though out of Jonathan's delayed and then. Um, ascending, you know, crescendoing laugh. I thought that was that was funny, but uh, but anyway, the uh, so so you can see there, uh, Jonathan and Braxton were going through a uh, discussion. Did I say sorry? Not May. Why do I have five three up there? Thank you, Susan. This slide is obviously wrong. It was not May third, twenty twenty one. It was September third, twenty 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 one. I don't know what happened there. Thank you, Susan, for correcting me. Uh, but anyway, you can see there what's going on. Braxton and, and Jonathan are, are doing an episode about angels. And in the context of that, they come to this slide where uh, Braxton attempts to substantiate, number one, that, hum that angelic beings and God are spirits and that humans are both flesh and spirit. And it was in that context that Braxton said, if somebody has a chance, you know, can get a hold of him, find out what Chris thinks. And here's the funny thing. When that aired, I had not yet decided what I would do for today's show and was really kind of scratching my head trying to figure out what I wanted to cover. And this was a perfect opportunity. Uh, to just, I'll just answer his question, but in a way, you know, in my show, such that other people might be able to benefit from it as well. So just to be clear, what I'm going to do here is not try and... Um, substantiate physicalism. I'm not going to try and make a positive case for physicalism. And by the way, I didn't try to do that in the last two episodes on the topic either. One of these days, I will maybe do an, uh, a video making a positive case for physicalism, but that's not what I'm going to do here. All I want to do here is answer Braxton's question. Whoops. Drop something there. Answer Braxton's question. What is it? That, how do I, what do I think of these texts that he purports, Braxton purports, uh, say that man is both flesh and spirit? So that's what we're going to dive into today. And it's not going to be a long episode. I suspect maybe another 15 or 20 minutes max, uh, but we'll see. So let's start with this first bullet on his slide, and we're going to cover the first three bullets today. Those are all that are relevant to this discussion. And his first bullet, Braxton's that is, says Hebrews 1, 7, and 14 refer to angels as spirits. Pneuma is the Greek word, and in verse 7, the author is quoting from the Old Testament, where the word translated pneuma in the Septuagint is ruach in Hebrew. So let's talk about Hebrews 1, 7, and 14. The text says this in the ESV. Of the angels, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And then verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So both of these words, uh, winds and spirits, both translate the same Greek word, pneuma. Um, so let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, the Lunita or Lonita lexicon, which is probably my favorite. I use it as much or more than I do BDAG. We'll, we'll see another BDAG entry a little bit later. Uh, but the, the Lonita lexicon defines Panuma in verse 7, where it's translated winds, as, among other things, air in, air in relatively rapid movement but without specification as to the force of the movement. So wind blowing or to blow. 
So that's what that's so the reason I'm putting this up here is just to to further substantiate what I said in the first of the episodes in this on this topic that I did back episode 16. Um, the word panuma, like the Hebrew word ruach, and like virtually all words in virtually every language, is polysemous or or um, uh, it, it's it's uh, it has more than one meaning. It's got a semantic range. And the one of those meanings of pneuma is breath or wind, which is one of the reasons, which contributes to the case that I made in episode 16 for understanding that to be what Jesus and Stephen talk about when they commend their pneumas back to God. Um, and look what the lexicon goes on to say. It says in Psalm 104.4, that's what Hebrews 1.7 is quoting, the Hebrew actually means you use the winds as your messengers. The form cited here in Hebrews 1.7 reflects the Septuagint translation. So I want to take a closer look at Psalm 104.4 for a moment. The ESV says he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. But if all you read was the ESV, you might not know that that actually isn't likely what the original text is saying. Other translations better capture what the original text is saying. He makes the winds his messengers. He doesn't, it's not that he makes his messengers winds, it's that he makes the winds his messengers, and flaming fire his ministers. That's the way the NASB translates it, and it's translated similarly by the NIV, NLT, the RSV and NRSV, the CSB and HCSB, and the NET. And I think that this is, uh, this is definitely, very clearly, what the original text is saying, and here's why. If you go back to verses 1 and 2, what the psalmist is doing is talking about God's use of, the, of natural phenomena um, to clothe himself with splendor and, you know, and, and to accomplish his purposes. So the text says that he covers himself with light as a garment, stretches out the heavens, like a tent. It goes on. He lays the he uses the waters as the beams of his chambers, and he makes the clouds his chariot, and he makes the wind what he rides on. You see how this works. You see the point is that God is utilizing the natural world that he created to bring himself glory and to accomplish his purposes. And that's why those other translations I mentioned earlier get this next verse right. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. You can look at it this way, just put up a chart where you've got the natural phenomenon on the left side, the use by God on the other side, and you can see light is his garment, the heavens are his tent, the waters are his rooms, the clouds are his chariot, the winds are his messengers, and flaming fire are his ministers. But here's the interesting thing. The reason, probably, that the ESV swaps it and says the winds are his messengers, or sorry, the messengers, he makes his messengers winds, is because of the Septuagint. The Septuagint, which is what Hebrews 1.7 follows, reads a little bit differently. Hapoyon tus angelus autu pneumata. He makes his angels or his messengers winds. So the Septuagint and, and Hebrews are swapping the order of the text. And what commentators like Harold Atridge are going to tell you is that. In rendering the Hebrew so that the predication is reversed, instead of he makes the winds his messengers, it's he makes his messengers winds, 
The reason for this is that is that the translator of Septuagint may have had in mind theophanies in which meteorological phenomena, like wind, were taken to be transformed angels. He goes on to say, the remark that concludes the Katina in verse 14 of Hebrews 1 will contrast the subordinate function of angels, as servants of those who will inherit salvation, to the Son who brings it. Equally significant is the transitory and mutable quality of these angelic servants apparent in the images of wind and flame. You see, what the, what the text of Hebrews is saying is not that God makes his angels spirits. It's saying he makes his angels winds. And the reason he makes them winds in contrast to what he makes his son is because his angels are transitory and mutable like wind. Whereas the Son is eternal and immutable, because he's God. Leon Morris comments similarly, saying that if the angels are immeasurably superior to men, the Son is immeasurably superior to the angels. Whereas he has sonship, they are reducible to nothing more than the elemental forces of wind and fire. Also, the implication is probably that the angels are temporary in contrast to the Son who is eternal. So you can see there that Leon Morris is saying pretty much the same thing that Harold Atridge does. So we come back to this text in Hebrews 1 and 7 and 14, and we can see there's no really good reason to think that Pneuma in verse 14 means something different than it does in verse 7. We really should say of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and then verse 14 should be rendered they, uh, that they are all ministering winds. You see, the point is that Hebrews doesn't identify angels as being composed of spirit. Rather, it identifies angels as being as transitory as wind and as mere servants, the way that God uses the winds, as Psalm 104 says. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that God and angels aren't spirit. Um, Jesus says in Luke 24, 39, Touch me and see, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he's talking there about, about an angelic being or a fallen, a fallen angel. And John 4.24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we do see that God and angels are spirit, but from other texts. But the thing about Hebrews 1, 7, and 14 is that it reinforces that pneuma often means wind or breath, as I argued that it means in Luke 23.46 and Acts 7.59, back in episode 16. Right? If, if, if pneuma here means moving, moving air, that further substantiates the plausibility of the idea that what Jesus and Stephen are doing is commending their breath back to God, knowing that he will one day give it back. But now let's turn to the next bullet on Braxton's slide. This is the word that is pneuma or ruach in Hebrew. Pneuma is Greek. This is the word used when referring to God's nature. And then he quotes Isaiah 31.3. The Egyptians are human and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. And he points out that the word for spirit in this passage is ruach, that same word that is translated spirit in the psalm and in Hebrews. Well, by virtue of it quoting the psalm. So let's dig into Isaiah 31.3. This is going to be a short section because it's actually remarkably straightforward. The text says the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Now, if it's not immediately clear to you because of the way that I've formatted the text... What we have here is a parallelism. In the first parallel, we, uh, first half of the parallelism, we have the Egyptians are man and not God. 
And then on the other side of the parallelism is their horses are flesh and not spirit. The reason this is a parallel parallelism is because they're both trying to they're both serving to make the same point that all that creation and the Egyptians to whom the Israelites were tempted to turn for help they are not what God is and God is far infinitely superior to those creatures. So you could look at it this way as a sort of a way of diagramming the parallelism. You've got A1, the Egyptians are man, and A2 is the parallel clause, their horses are flesh. And then B1 is and not God. In other words, the Egyptians are men and not God. That's B1, and not God. And then B2, the parallel clause to that is and not spirit. Namely, the horses aren't spirit. So again, we can, uh, well, so, so here, here's a, a few commentaries that make the point. John Oswald says this verse continues the contrast between Egypt and God by asserting that flesh is hardly equal to spirit. Scriptures remind us in various ways that flesh can neither help us nor harm us in the face of God. You see, the contrast isn't between some things that have flesh and some things that are flesh and spirit, and then on the other side is God, it was just spirit. No. The contrast is between flesh over here and spirit over there. Period. You can see John Watts saying the same thing. Note the contrast between divine and human plans and powers. God is ruach, spirit, not basar, flesh. The words do not define God's essence, but in flesh they do summarize the totality of human finitude. God is beyond that. He is constant. Again, you see the point. There's God who is spirit over here, and then there's flesh over here. And that flesh includes both the Egyptians and their horses. One more commentary worth noting is John Goldingay. On the one side, there are mortals. The word is Adam, the regular word for human beings and their humanness. Only creatures with breath in them. And parallel to Adam is flesh, basar, the stuff common to human beings and animals. But on the other side, there is God, and God is ruach, spirit. God and spirit are two words that stand for what distinguishes deity from creation. So again, this text is not contrasting some things that have flesh and other things that have flesh and spirit with spirit on the other side it's a contrast between god and everything else spirit and flesh again you can use a chart to see how the parallelism works egyptians are man on the left side and their horses are flesh on the left side but the egyptians are not god on the right side and horses are not spirit on the right side so Egyptians, man, horses, flesh, these are all sort of the sphere of the left side of this parallelism. And on the other side is God and spirit. You see, these aren't equal to each other. They're, th these are being contrasted against each other. You see, Isaiah 31.3 implies that humans are just as much flesh and not spirit as their horses are. Now, going back to that quote I had up here a moment ago from, I think it was Leon Morris, Leon uh, contends here that spirit is not here intending to define God's essence. Fine. I'm not arguing that it does. But if it does, which is sort of implied by Braxton's um, slide, if it does, then that means that just as true it is, is tr just as true as it is that horses are not spirit, it's equally true that neither are humans. On the face of it, that actually seems to refute 
Braxton's du substance dualism. But we'll come back and say a little bit more about that later. So now let's turn to the third bullet. And here is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 and 2 Corinthians 7.1, Braxton alleges both indicate that man is both flesh and spirit. So let's look at this a little bit more closely. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, um, you know, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's sarks in Greek. So that his spirit, there's pneuma, may be saved. And then 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Paul is encouraging readers to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body. Uh, it's, again, the word sarks. And spirit, again, the word pneuma. Now, I just want to point something out before we move on. Notice that where Jesus says angels are spirits and God is spirits, the relationship between the entity and, and the substance is an is relationship, right? God is spirit. Angels are spirit. But these texts, contrary to the way that Braxton put it on this slide, don't say that man is flesh and spirit, but rather they seem to indicate that man has flesh and spirit. But that's a minor point and, and isn't going to feature prominently in my response as we move forward. But what I do want to do is point out that although the sort of face value reading, our, our, our natural inclination as 21st century English speakers is to automatically assume that what's happening here is that body and immaterial spirit are being contrasted with one another. Uh, scholars recognize that that's not at all easily, that's not at all clearly the case. Gordon Fee, no schlub in the area of New, of, uh, New Testament um, exegesis, says the problem is twofold. What does flesh mean in the phrase for the destruction of the flesh? And number two, what is the nature of the contrast between flesh and spirit? Unfortunately, he says, no solution is without difficulties. And he's right, although I think that my solution is without very many. But anyway, he goes on to say that flesh here means the whole person as oriented away from God. The destruction of one's sinful nature would thus belong to the same kind of imagery as in crucifying the flesh. So he's saying that flesh here doesn't mean this stuff, right? The stuff here on my bones. It means the fleshly nature, the sinful nature. And this is actually a very common reading. Anthony Thistleton says, with a view to the destruction of the fleshly. That's how he translates this. What is to be destroyed, he says, is the fleshly stance of self-sufficiency, of which Paul accuses primarily the community, but surely also the man. What Paul hopes will be destroyed is the man's attitude of self-congratulation, which deprivation, which deprivation from the respect and support of the church is likely to bring about. Again, we've got a scholar here saying that the flesh here isn't this stuff, but rather a disposition, an inclination. Alan Johnson such, says such, such unrepentant offenders must learn the folly of the world's snare and have their sinful nature destroyed. And Ben Witherington, more likely Paul refers in this way to the destruction of the sinful inclinations of this brother. Again, what they're all saying is the same thing. Flesh here does not refer to a substance. Rather, it refers to a disposition, an attitude, a mindset. Right? So, let's think about that for a moment. We've already established that pneuma um, can mean breath. And we've already established that it can mean a substance, but there's more that it can mean. 
here's that low Nita lexicon again, and um, it lists a number of different definitions of pneuma, but two of them, notice, are inner being and way of thinking. Now, that's interesting. The Where Lonita lists these uh, glosses, it has links if you've got a digital version, and when you click on them, it takes you to a more expanded definition of that sort. So when you click on inner being, it takes you to a definition that says, among other things, psychological faculty. And similarly, when you click on way of thinking, it takes you to a definition which includes attitude or disposition. And it's not just Lonita, here's BDAG, that other lexicon that I mentioned. Among the many definitions it lists, it lists a, a part of human personality, including insight, feeling, will, a spiritual state or state of mind. Now, note, now, if you think, remember, we saw that flesh here doesn't mean a substance, like a stuff of which you're made. It refers to a particular kind of disposition, a disposition of a certain sort. And here we see that pneuma can also refer not to a disposition of a specific sort, but disposition full stop. So, coming back to this text, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, when, when Paul says to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved, what it appears that Paul is doing is expressing hope for the destruction of a man's sinful inclinations, his sarks. Because doing so will save his mindset or his disposition, his attitude, his will. In other words, his pneuma. You see, his mind will be saved if his evil inclinations are destroyed. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that therefore it can't refer to an immaterial spirit. Quite the contrary. Most theologians, I think, would say that the spirit just is like the seat of mindset, disposition, attitude, or will. And that's fine. I'm not disputing that. All I'm saying is what this word is referring to here is not the immaterial substance in which these things are alleged to subsist. Rather, it refers to these things themselves, the, the, the mindset, the disposition, the attitude, or the will. And, and again, that is the most natural contrast to flesh here, since flesh here isn't referring to a substance. It's referring to a disposition. But what about 2 Corinthians 7.1? Here, both body or sarks and spirit or pneuma can be defiled. And right off the bat, that means we're not dealing with the same kind of meanings as those two words have in 1 Corinthians 5.5. Because in 1 Corinthians 5.5, um, the spirit being saved would mean it's not defiled, and the flesh is specifically something that is by its very nature defiled. It's, it's the it's sinful inclinations. So clearly in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul is talking about something, uh, evidently, two aspects of man, two things that characterize a man's composition or makeup or whatever. But here's the thing. Remember, we've already seen that pneuma can be a mindset, a disposition, or an attitude. Well, with that in mind, consider consider the possibility, and this is this is my take, that the two aspects in view in 2 Corinthians 7.1 are not uh, flesh and immaterial soul or spirit, but rather body and mindset or heart or disposition or will or attitude. Right? It's the outwardly it's the outer and outwardly visible part of us and the inward inward part of us our mind our thoughts our inclinations our, our feelings our emotions our psychology our, our psyche right 
Um, so, to give you some examples of kind of what I'm getting at here, look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, or, or the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, right? The, they, they clean themselves, and they, they, they put ash on their forehead to repent, and you know all the stuff that they're supposed to do outwardly, they're doing. But within themselves, they are full of dead people's bones. Specifically, they are inwardly hypocritical and lawless. Or, or Mark 7.21, where Jesus says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within come evil thoughts, and those are what defile us. Again, the, it's talking about what's inside of us mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Not in the sense of substance, but in the sense of mind, of will, of, of emotion, psyche. John 2.24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to these people because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Um, Koran, no, the P is silent in translation, but not in the actual Greek. So we see, yes, we see in, in a translation, in, a, in an English word like pneumonia, that P is silent. But when you pronounce the Greek, you're supposed to pronounce the P. I'm not sure if that's something you're challenging, but it's simply the matter of fact. All right, so to see what I'm talking, just so you know I'm not making this up, Here's Murray Harris's commentary, the New International Greek Testament commentary. He says, This is a popular non-theological use of sarks and pneuma, where they refer in a complementary, not antithetical way, to the outward and inward aspects of the person, the physical and spiritual parts. Or Paul Barnett, the totality of one's being is what must be undefiled, not just part of it, not just part of one's being. Um... No part physical or emotional, he says, is exempt from Paul's call for cleansing. Now, again, I want to reiterate, I'm, th these people may very, the commentators I'm quoting here may very well conceive of the spirit being an immaterial substance, like a soul in which emotion and psyche subsist. Fine. But my point is that what Pneuma here is referring to is not the immaterial substance that allegedly we have, but rather to the emotions, to the will, the mind, the mindset, the disposition, the attitude, the inclinations. So it's not, a, it's, it's not that human beings have a body and have an immaterial soul. That could be the case, but that's not what 2 Corinthians 7.1 or 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 are saying. What the one is saying is that our sinful inclinations should be destroyed so that our um, psyche is saved, our, our, our heart, our mind, our disposition, our will. And the other one is saying we need to be saved in both body and thought, body and mind, inclination, disposition, etc. So let me sum up the response to Braxton that I've here offered. Firstly, Hebrews 1 is consistent with what I argue in videos like, uh, in places like episode 16 of the show. Man's breath returns to God at death. That's number one. Number two, Isaiah 31 appears on, at least on the surface, to undercut Braxton's own case. Because what it implies by virtue of the structure of its parallelism is that like horses, men are flesh and not spirit. And third and finally, Corinthians, both first and second, is consistent with man having body, the thing that's outwardly visible, and mindset, the thing that is inward and invisible, the disposition, the attitude, or the will. And that doesn't require 
an a, a, a immaterial substance called a soul. Although there may be one in which those things subsist, but the point is it's not required. I mean, the whole point of physicalism is that mental phenomena don't require an immaterial substance. So, if these words spirit in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians are referring to mental phenomena, mental states, then yes, we have a body and a mind, but it doesn't necessarily follow from that that we have a body and a soul. So that is it. I said it would be short. It went a little longer than I said it would probably go, but hopefully it is enough to show you how physicalists like me think. And this is, this is really important. All of us inescapably come to the text with presuppositions, with, uh, with our reading glasses colored a certain color. And as 21st century English-speaking Westerners, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of baggage accumulated in the word spirit. Which is not to mention the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of theological uh, of of years of theological baggage that comes with it as well that the English word just inherited from previous generations that used different words. So, when you come to English translations of texts that use the word spirit in some way that has to do with well anything, but certainly man, you can't assume that when it appears, even when it appears next to a word translated flesh or body, you can't just automatically assume that that baggage in which spirit means an immaterial soul or substance, uh, you can't just read that in. You have to go and look at what the text says in the original context. And it, no doubt that now being a physicalist for approximately, approximately 10 years, I also come to these texts, reading them with certain presuppositions as well. Totally totally admit that. But the question is, when you do the hard work of exegesis and you start looking at how the words are being used in their contexts, which of the two readings of those texts does that data support? And my contention today is that the data we've looked at here, at best, is equally consistent with the texts that Braxton brought up in the live stream the other day, at best. At worst, they lend themselves more to the physicalist reading I have than to Braxton's dualist reading, especially Isaiah 31. Because again, Isaiah 31, given the structure of its parallelism, seems to be saying that men are flesh and not spirit. And it's funny that I, I never even, I, I didn't even, I was never aware of this verse. Would never have thought to include it in a positive case for physicalism, but I'm considering doing so now. But I'll have to do further research. Anyway, I hope that's been helpful. I'm sure that some of you who are uh, dualists, uh, and for that matter, some of you who are physicalists as well, are probably waiting desperately, well, waiting anxiously to see me give a positive case. Why in the world, Chris, are you a physicalist? I mean, maybe you, maybe you can see, given episodes 16, 19, and now this episode, why the texts that are thought to support dualism, why I am not convinced they do, 
but maybe you still sort of scratch your head as to why I might be a physicalist. Well, that's going to have to wait for another show, because that wasn't the point of this one. This was simply a response or, or an answer to Braxton's question. So there you go, Braxton. The ball's back in your court, should you choose to dribble it down court. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe at some point we can discuss the issue further hope this has been helpful and enjoyable to you all um i will try to come back in two weeks with a more interesting episode we'll see what i'm able to come up with uh next episode of the apologetics will be in two weeks time as usual monday september 20th uh 6 p.m pacific 9 p.m eastern and i'll look forward to seeing you then don't forget to check out the trinity commission and trinity seminary trinity college of the bible and theological seminary trinitysem.edu and uh, for that matter don't forget to check out Trinity Radio where Braxton Hunter streams regularly and where he streamed the stuff that we responded to today thank you so much and I will uh, look forward to seeing you next time bye bye I've been your host Chris Date and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics where we think together through what we believe why we believe it and not something else if you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then... <laughs>